Hello and welcome to this week's Law & Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder of Law & Sport. In this week's show, I'll be speaking to Kevin Carpenter and Josh Kay about the introduction of goal line technology in football and about gambling regulation in the United States of America. I hope you enjoy the show. Today I'm joined by Kevin Carpenter, the former editor of Law & Sport now editorial board member and sports lawyer at the law firm Hill Dickinson. Kevin is going to be providing an update on the US gambling market. And Josh Kay, a sports lawyer and regular blogger for Law in Sport, is going to be talking about the introduction of goal line technology in football. So Josh, to start off, can you give us a history of the introduction of goal line technology in football and why it's being introduced now? Sure. Well, first and foremost, thank you very much for having me on the podcast today. Um, as you know, I've re- recently written an article about the introduction of goal line technology, um, and um, the backdrop of this uh, is that um, the general rule for when you score a goal is that a goal is scored when the whole ball crosses over the goal line, and on the basis that the ball is only um, only has a circumference of between 60 and 70 centimetres it becomes very difficult for a referee to decide whether the whole ball has crossed the line, especially when the game is played at the pace at which it's played today. Over the years, there's been a number of controversial decisions where um, people, fans, football managers, footballers themselves have debated whether the ball has or has not crossed the line. And we can go back and look at uh, hundreds of examples, but some of the... um, some of the examples that are at the forefront of everyone's mind, you can go back to the 1966 World Cup final um, and uh, debate whether Jeff Hurst's final goal did or did not cross the line. Um, luckily for England, it did. And a number of examples in between, but it was, it was thrust right back into the limelight when Tottenham played Man United um, a few years ago and Pedro Mendes took a shot from the halfway line uh, Roy Carroll was com- caught completely unaware, and uh, the ball went in the net, and he kind of clawed it out from behind the line. But because the linesman and the referee were keeping up with the play at the halfway line, they couldn't, they weren't in the right spot to spot that the ball had crossed the line. So um, the authorities have been pestered by the media, by the, the footballers themselves, to introduce goal line technology, and for a number of years they rejected the idea. Um, they introduced assistant referees to help the referee with area decisions recently. Um, but um, a few years ago, um, following the World Cup in 2010, and specifically following the decision in a game against England versus Germany, where Frank Lampard um, took a shot, it crossed the line, but the goal wasn't given, um, FIFA decided to um, open up the, the debate once again. And IFAB, the um, International Football Association Board, um, who basically decides on the rules, is made up of the FA, the um, Welsh FA, the Scottish FA, the Northern Irish FA, and FIFA also have four seats on that panel. And they decide what rules are made, decided to open up the investigation into goal line technology and did a number of tests over the years. Uh, the first set of tests failed, but then last year they decided that there was a system that was accurate enough and fit in with the, the um, requirements um, and decided to introduce goal line technology for the first time at the Confederations Cup this year, the World Cup next year, 
and subsequently the Premier League have decided to introduce um, the Hawkeye system um, into the Premier League season starting in September 2013. Um, and that gives you a, a rough overview of what's happened. Kevin, I'll be interested to get your view as a referee yourself. What do you think this means for match officials in football? Will this make any impact whatsoever? Well, I think all referees um, welcome any introduction of um, technology in the main into football to assist with their decision-making. Um, and particularly at the top levels of the game, I think it's important due to the, primarily, unfortunately, the, the commercial drivers uh, means that you know one goal not given here here or there can mean a significant amount um, of money to, to certain clubs in terms of positions and in terms of finishing in European competitions. So I can see the attractiveness from that point of view. Um, it then comes to the point of where does it then stop uh, as time goes forward. Um, I have to say, I think, as Josh mentioned, the additional assistant referee system, which is used in UEFA competitions, um, I think, uh, from my perspective, it's largely a nonsense. Um, but Mr Platini, who will be, who is favourite to to take over from Mr. Blatter in the future, um, he may want he may well again put uh, stop to the buffers of any further technology because he's not in favour of goal line technology um, and likes the additional assistant referee system. So we can see, um, depending on who comes in next at the top level of FIFA, uh, depends how much further technology for referees will go. Josh, um, I'd like your views on this. Some of the behaviour that we've seen, I know you're going to touch on this in, in an article you've come out recently. Some of the behaviour we've seen with how players treat referees it's intimidating for the referees it causes a delay to the game and maybe technology could help reduce that well i think technology this is, depends how you look at it and what role it plays if you if you think it kind of just helps the assistants make more accurate decisions then you can kind of sit in one camp but the other um argument behind all of this is we shouldn't really need technology to help um, referees make more accurate decisions. What we should be doing is teaching our children and our sportsmen um, to to have more integrity, really, to to be more honest with decisions, and and maybe that's the answer to the problem, rather than just saying, right, well, clearly we need some help with decisions, and technology can do that. What we should really be looking is the broader social context and saying, well. Actually, if we teach players that, you know, putting their hands up and saying, you know what, I, I, you made the wrong decision, this, you weren't quite right there, maybe, you know, that's more responsible to, to society as a whole. Um, I'm sure Kevin, as a referee, has been uh, shouted at and screamed at over the years, so I, I think I'm living in a dream world if someone's going to say that. I mean, I, I've said before, the likelihood of Roy Carroll, for example, putting his hands up and saying, you know what, linesman, you got that one wrong, uh, it was in the goal, is, is very unlikely. Um, so it, 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 there's a broader social question that needs to be answered and how education can play a role. Kevin, what do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I think there's something to be learned from various other sports, but also cricket and the way, the way they've introduced the decision review system for umpires is that it's there to, in essence, eliminate what we might call the howler or the obviously wrong decision. Otherwise, uh, elements of interpretation are still left at the umpire's discretion. Now, we'll give you a, a good example of this outside of goal line technology. Um, the same day as the Frank Lampard incident for England, Germany, in the refereeing community, it's called Black Sunday. Because on the same day, later on in Johannesburg, I was at the game uh, between Argentina and Mexico, and there was a a goal awarded to Argentina where I believe it was it was Carlos Tevez, I think, 
was at least five yards offside, and mm. for some unknown reason, the assistant missed it. Now, unfortunately, what happened in the stadium and what wasn't supposed to happen was that that decision was shown on the big screen in yeah. the stadium. The uh, Mexico players ran across the assistant referee, having seen, well, they knew it was offside, anyway, but having seen it on the screen, and pointed to the referee and said, look at the screen. And he basically went across and, in his body language, said, I can't over, overrule the decision on the basis of the television screen in the stadium. And then he had all, all on for the rest of the game with his man management, obviously. Um, but for that sort of decision, that's where, to me, the fourth official should have a TV monitor nearby where he can overrule obviously wrong decisions on, on, at, at the time and intervene. You've, got the, you've already got the headset communication system, which is very good. So his role needs to be um, given greater scope, I, I think, on that point. And what do you think about the social aspect, the behavioural um, point about players themselves taking more responsibility and being more honest? Yeah, I, th- I think in terms of the integrity side and the behavioural side of, of, of players generally, um, it, it is still poor, uh, despite the FA's respect campaign, um, which I think has improved things a little bit, but not to the extent that they hoped, and UEFA's same campaign and some of the things run by FIFA. Um, in, in my personal experience as a referee, when I was coming through, I've been doing it kind of five years on and off now, and um, it's it's at, at sort of Sunday football level in, in the UK, some of the behaviour is truly appalling. and I've been threatened with physical violence on more than one occasion. Um, and, you know, trying to coach young referees coming through, everybody has a different tolerance level of bad language and bad, um, and bad behaviour, but I take it as my view when I'm refereeing is that, you know, there are young children and families around the side of the stadium. And even this, this past season, I stopped a game in the 88th minute uh, because of abuse from a, an assistant manager. Um, and I went over and told him, you know, he has a great responsibility to the, to the families that are nearby to watch his language, essentially. Um, so I think it, it comes down to individual, unfortunately. Uh, the people at the sports governing body level don't always support match officials in these yeah. instances because they don't want uh, to be constantly penalising teams and players um, for you know reasons of participation and reasons of fi- finances as well. I'm afraid it's, it's part of the drivers for, for governing bodies. So uh, we haven't found the right balance yet. Um, Everybody looks at rugby as a, as a sort of standard bearer in this area, and there is a lot to be learned from there. Um, but I think in some instances even they're too strict, probably, in that way. But changing a culture is, takes tens of years, and it's not going, to, not going to change overnight, unfortunately. And just sort of backing up what Kevin was saying there, you know, there, there are arguments saying that goal-line technology reinforces the idea that the referee is to blame for all kinds of mishaps and errors and... and um, um, football games being lost. You know, the idea that the referee controls the outcome of a game is actually not true. When you look at the amount of decisions, the amount of tactics, and um, what the player, how the players control the game. You know, the reality is the players and the managers control the outcome of the game, not a very small decision by the referee. Um, and and this this introduction of technology could be said to be reinforcing the idea that. The, the referee has a, just the most pivotal. I think in terms of the fans at all levels of the game and all the stakeholders at all levels of the game, there are more pressing issues with the laws than introducing technology. Yeah. Yeah. And, honest, and the, have, the idea of instant replays to help referees is, is an interesting one. I think 
um, the reason why UEFA and FIFA were such staunch opponents of bringing goal line technology into the game was that this could open the door to a whole range of other technologies that uh, can be used, such as instant replay, and, and they're concerned about where it stops. And I think one of the things that Michel Platini always says is that the game is human. There, there's a human element here, and, and the mistakes is what draws people to the game, and, and the debate is what makes it interesting. Um, so, you know, that's another thing that needs to be considered. But, I mean, as far as, as instant replays go, if you look at other sports that have introduced it, tennis, very popular. People love the Hawkeye system, and it, it kind of becomes a feature of the game now. So there's two sides to every argument. And, and ironically, I guess the sort of final point is that um, even countries that have been against the introduction of technology and most, probably most high-profile is India in relation to the DR, DRS system in cricket. In the recent Champions Trophy at the halfway stage, they were actually the country that benefited the most from it. They were forced to use it in the international tournament by the ICC, whereas they're not forced to use it in their own games. Um, and they've shown they'd had a 100% success rate in using the DRS. So moving away from the use of technology in sport and onto a subject which is drawing a lot of attention in the United States, and that is sports betting. Kevin, can you tell us uh, about what's been going on over in the US? I know you've written about this uh, recently, um, but it's quite an interesting development as it's widely perceived that sports betting does not play a huge impact or the threat of corruption in sport uh, in the US doesn't play a huge impact on the US market. Sure. Well, the current state of affairs is that this item's come back to the forefront of the sort of sporting agenda in the United States because of a um, a bill that's been passed by the state of New Jersey, who were originally one of the four states who were allowed to, um, because of historic reasons, they were allowed to um, introduce some legislation to have their own sports betting um, regime in the state when um, the, the uh, protection of Professional and Amateur Sports Act was passed back in 1992, but unfortunately they missed their deadline to do so. Now it's come to the uh, it's come to the forefront again because, due to the economic uh, conditions we now live in, um, a, a number of states in America are finding it increasingly difficult to balance the books uh, of public money, um, and therefore they see sports betting, which is currently illegal, as we say in the majority of states, as being a, a great sort of untapped pool of uh, revenue which could be used both for job creation and for taxes. Uh, they, they passed this act um, last year um, in contravention of the federal law which is in place and then uh, not surprisingly uh, the, the, four, well, the, the four professional sports and the National Collegiate Athletic Association uh, challenged it and the Department of Justice uh, on behalf of the government then joined the lawsuit against the state as well to stop them passing this bill and introducing it um, to allow sports betting in the state. What's your take on this? Because the, both NCAA and the professional leagues, they don't want to encourage sports betting. But as we know from, from what's been going on in Europe and further afield, that often the regulated markets aren't the problem, it's the unregulated where the issue is. And there's still a lot of people within the state who place bets on sports. In fact the Final Four competition for the NCAA uh, that John Hootlahan talked about um, on one of our previous interviews, the amount wagered was in the sort of hundreds of millions of pounds on a tournament which doesn't, which prohibits gambling. 
I think what the problem is is what I experienced last year at the Sports Lawyers Association conference in San Diego was that the the sports league and the entity are vehemently opposed to sports betting and will not have any argument made against it. And they believe this is the best way to maintain the integrity is by having a ban. And in my latest blog, I use the example uh, of prohibition in America in the 1920s on alcohol. All it did, instead of actually protecting people, was drove into hands of organized crime. And this is what's happening now with sports betting around the world, including in America. And I was recently speaking with Declan Hill in one of his videos that he used. He'd interviewed, as part of his investigative journalism work, he'd interviewed a mafia boss in New York who talked about um, approaching athletes in bars and clubs to, to fix games um, and to manipulate betting markets. So this is happening, and it's been kept out of, I think, for largely social reasons in America. Betting is seen as a, outwardly as a great evil to society. But uh, what's really happening on the, on, the, on the ground level and on the streets is that people bet all the time on sports, and the market runs into hundreds of billions every year, and, it, and is ever-increasing. So it, it's time for, really, to be honest, I'm, I'm strong in the view that it's time for the federal government to have a discussion, and I think the New Jersey case is probably legally destined to fail, ultimately, on constitutional grounds, from, from what I understand of the case and the, the legal system in America. But if Congress can discuss the real issues at heart and get some evidence, evidential basis for whatever they decide, and that would be better than what we have now, is really no evidence to suggest that this is a better way to regulate, a, a better way to um, to have sports betting than to regulate it. Uh, I, I am concerned, and I know that you are, that what happens as what's happened in doping and most other sectors have suffered the same sadly that regulation is only introduced when something seriously goes wrong and i have a feeling that in the states that only at the point where something comes to light that has happened that negatively impacts sport significantly will the willingness change to regulate yeah i mean i completely agree and i think I think in recent times, what's what's made change people's opinions slightly is the is the hypocrisy on integrity that we see with U.S. sports. For example, with the NFL uh, seeking to grow outside of America, particularly in the U.K., and this year it's having two Wembley games. And Commissioner Roger Goodell said the other day that they're planning for three probably next year. And you know, ultimately, I think the the plan is to have a franchise based in London somewhere down the line. Uh, and obviously, we have in the United Kingdom, we have a very liberal market, but well regulated uh, to, 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 to a large degree. And the fact that they're hosting games in Wembley and they say, well, we close all the betting kiosks in Wembley during the game, unlike when it, there's a football game there, which is fine. But I can walk down the street to Wembley Park Tube Station and just down there, there's William Hill, Labbrooks, etc., where I can put a bet on the NFL games. And I can bet on NFL games taking place in America on markets outside of America. So it may, it's a nonsensical approach to the, the policy approach, really. But you probably don't even need to go down to the shop. You can just log it on your mobile phone. Well, exactly, in the stadium, yeah. Um, and I, I think the NBA have also got this issue now because having done some games in London, they're now having a game 
in Manchester next year and in other places around the world, including in very dangerous markets for integrity and betting, such as the Philippines, Taiwan and China. So they're really opening themselves up to more and more integrity problems by playing games in this area and having this this hands-off approach, really. And I, and I guess this is the part of the problem with, that comes with the globalisation of sport, that when you start to, much like the Premier League going into the States or um, the major leagues coming to Europe, you know, once you start to go into different markets, you have to... Uh, at least acknowledge and address some of the regulatory problems that that will throw up. And if you are a lawyer acting in sport for any of these, so or any sporting organisations, um, generally, especially if you're at a senior level and you will be competing abroad, that you need to have a broad understanding of the economic, social, and legal, and political um, influences on sport. Uh, completely, I agree. Um, and I think, you know, I think the worst thing we can do in the fight, and it, and it is the global fight, you know, and the global understanding, number one, of how sports betting markets work, and number two, of then how to, how that links to integrity and how to protect that as well, is burying your head in the sand is the worst thing you can do, <laughs> ultimately. And that, and that, to me, this blinkered approach is seemingly what... American sports and also to a certain degree the American government by support continuing to support the the PASPA Act is doing and I just don't think that's a sustainable uh, position moving forward and I, and I hope for the sake of their sports to, to a large degree as you said there isn't a large betting scandal that then forces their hand to do so and that something's done proactively before it gets to that point. There are there are a few uh, guys who you deal with quite regularly, aren't there? Who are um, trying to encourage a dialogue over over in the US. But for those who would like to get more involved, or or if you can make recommendations to the US government and to the major leagues, what would you say would be the the best course of action? Well, as you said, I think the first thing is dialogue and dialogue on, a, on an international basis because there is a lot of good work um, going on between different. Um, international bodies who who would be more than happy to to have more input um, from from U.S. sports and from U.S. government officials. Um, so I think first of all it would be an engagement process and an education process really from that perspective, and then moving on from there uh, to seek to perhaps become a signatory to the the upcoming uh, international convention on match fixing from the Council of Europe. Also, perhaps working with other gambling regulators around the world to see how how best to set up an American equivalent um, to monitor markets to enforce legislation, um, and that there will there will be two initial steps. But the, I, I see this taking you know this will take tens of years um, because I think it's a cultural uh, shift that needs to be done. And again, cultural changes take a long time. That was Kevin Carpenter talking about the sports betting market in the U.S. Well, that's all we've got time for in today's show. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, for all your expert commentary and analysis of the latest legal developments from the world of sport, you can go to lawinsport.com, check us out on Twitter, at lawinsport, or go to our YouTube channel, Law in Sport TV.